what's up, Heights family? Uh, this week, we are in week two of our series, What is True? We've been talking about science lately, and with me today to join us in the conversation is Dr. Kevin Hamlin. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Dr. Kevin Hamlin is a distinguished endowed chair professor in the computer science department at the University of Texas at Dallas and the executive director of the Cybersecurity Research and Education Institute. His research involves formal methods-based software development, binary software reverse engineering, reactively adaptive malware attack and defense, and theory of high insurance software transformation hardening. Some of his discoveries have earned the National Science Foundation's Career Award, the NYU Poly Best Applied Security Paper of the Year Prize, the Air Force Young Investigator Award, and have sparked thousands of news headlines around the world, including The Economist and The New Scientist. He holds a PhD and bachelor's degrees from Carnegie Mellon and Cornell University in computer science and mathematical science. With all that, you are a member of the Heights Church, you are a life group director, and you identify a, as a Christian who holds to the historic Orthodox tenets of the faith. I want to explore the rest of our time getting to why it is that you do that. But first, can you just tell us a little about uh, your family? Tell us a little about your faith story and how you came to Christ. Sure, thanks. Yeah, um, I mean, I was fortunate, I think, to uh, grow up in a family of Christians. Both my parents were Christians, but they were also both professors. So um, I kind of feel like I've been a PhD student in training since birth. <laughs> um, so I was working on my dissertation when I was five and, you know, yeah, it's course. progressed mm -hmm. since yeah. then. So, uh, yeah, I, I feel like um, I, I made a profession of faith early on because I saw through the example of my parents how it was possible to be a thinking person and also a Christian. And I feel like throughout my life, my faith has um, faced a lot of skepticism. So I've had many conversations, mostly with people who say, this, this doesn't make sense that a thinking person could believe in something that requires you to turn off your brain, they think, in order to believe it. And um, throughout my life, I've found that just the opposite is true, at least for me. It takes a great thought to be a Christian, I think. Yeah, absolutely. We've talked before, and one of the ways that you see evidence for God is in what's called the teleological argument. Right. I'm specifically interested in hearing your take on how computer science fits into that. But first, for everybody who's not familiar, let, let me kind of talk through what the teleological argument is for the existence of God um, and kind of the history of it. Mm -hmm. It comes from the word telos, meaning uh, direction, um, and basically what it is, it's an argument for the existence of God that looks at the complex functions of nature and says there has to be a designer, there has to be a creator. The beginnings of this argument go as far back as ancient Greece. Um, there's evidence of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle um, observing this argument. Apostle Paul um, actually points to this in Romans 1 as evidence within the natural world for the existence of God. St. Augustine used this argument quite a bit, but it, it really hit its philosophical height with St. Thomas Aquinas when he presented the teleological argument as evidence for faith in God in his Summa Theologica. He put it forward five ways that God uh, exists, and the teleological argument was the fifth one. 
Uh, this is Summa Theologica, Article 3, Question 2. The fifth way is taken from the governance of the world. We see that things which lack knowledge, such as natural bodies, act for an end. So he's talking about the sun, the moon, the stars. They act for an end. And this is evident from their acting always or nearly always in the same way so as to obtain the best result. Hence, it is plain that they achieve their end not coincidentally, but designedly. Now, whatever lacks knowledge cannot move toward an end unless it be directed by something endowed with knowledge and intelligence, as the arrow is directed by the archer. Therefore, some intelligent being exists by whom all natural things are directed to their end, and this being we call God. Isaac Newton would pick up on this. Uh, the physicist who observed uh, that gravity exists as a force of nature, um, he would talk about the existence of a designer and creator in the world. He said this, he said, the most elegant system of the sun, planets, and comets could not have arisen without the design and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. And then William Paley in the early 1700s, uh, he spoke of the now famous watchmaker analogy, which basically says that uh, if someone came upon a watch, that would be evidence that there's a watchmaker. The intricacies, the purpose of it, and people, uh, scientists like Alistair McGrath, John Lennox, have pointed to that this is very much the natural world, that there's evidence due to the complexities of nature that points to a designer, that points to a creator. How does this play out in computer science? Yeah, so computer science is an uh, interesting discipline in that we don't directly study the natural world. So you might think that there's not much of a connection, but um, other scientists that do study the natural world, like physicists, they talk about things like the fine-tuning of the universe that seems to be conducive to life and how improbable that would be by chance. But what really fascinates me is the complexity of what are called biological computing systems. Okay. So uh, in the last, say, 100 years, science has made huge progress figuring out what goes on inside cells, for example, and how DNA actually works. Mm -hmm. And what we discover more and more is that these things are actually tiny computing systems. So they run very complex pieces of software. And these pieces of software don't work the same way that the software we write for computer systems does. Um, and the differences are really fascinating to me. So um, I'm somebody who works in cybersecurity. I have a great appreciation for how complex human-written software is. It's actually mind-bogglingly complex. Um, when you start up your computer, most likely your computer is running about half a billion lines of code that various people have written. That's just to start up the computer. I'm always amazed that it starts up at all, sure. right? I mean, it's, it's truly an accomplishment for uh, programmers around the world to have been able to come up with something like that that works. But the security implications are really dangerous because... Basically, if there's one misplaced asterisk in those 500 million lines of code, there's a catastrophic security vulnerability waiting to happen. And so people like me spend a lot of time trying to figure out how we can make more robust computing systems that will function correctly in the face of adversaries, 
be able to bounce back from bad conditions and not have these catastrophic failures. And yet then when I look at the biological world, the computing that goes on in there is just staggering. Like it's so far beyond anything that humans have even come close to implementing. Are you referring to DNA? Are you referring to how the the cell works and the with the mitochondria being the powerhouse, the Golgi bodies? Like yeah. what are you referring to in terms so of that? Both of those things. So the, the DNA is basically a computer code, you might think of it, yeah. for creating these complex nanofabrication factories. And they communicate using proteins and amino acids and such. And when you look at that, so just to take an example, um, I read recently that if you look at the sum of human knowledge that has been accumulated through every image that has ever been posted to the internet, cave drawings, every book that's ever been written, it's been estimated that that comprises 33 zettabytes of information. That's a gigantic number. I can't even I wrap my say, brain around it. can't even kind of wrap our brains yeah. around that. Yeah. It's, le- it's a 33 with 22 zeros after it. And so um, biologists have looked at that and said, what would happen if you tried to store 33 zettabytes of information as DNA? And the conclusion is that it would fit inside a ping pong ball. Stop it. Are you serious? So, like, consider we, we have no capability of storing 33 zettabytes of information, but somehow DNA does it in a ping pong ball. So that sort of thing makes me pause and say, you're telling me that a random series of events, okay, over billions of years, I'll take that at face value, came up with a computing system that is so efficient is not even the amount of storage. It's the fact that that storage is not merely the information. It's a gigantic program that has so much complex functionality and still works. So um, computer scientists have a whole field for this. It's called genetic algorithms. And so we, um, we try to figure out, well, how could we build computing systems that work so well? And one of the ideas has been, um, let's essentially replicate evolution. So we'll put computer code into a computing system, we'll um, perturb it randomly over time, and then we'll um, adapt it according to something called a fitness function. So this is basically a way of synthesizing code that's much more resilient by just doing this random perturbation. Are you trying to synthesize natural selection almost? It's Natural selection is basically the mechanism by which we might create a great operating system or a web browser or something. Yeah. And um, the nice thing is we're not constrained by the laws of the physical world, right? If it would be better off for us to not have to be constrained by the law of gravity, we don't have to put that into the simulation. And we're not constrained by time. We can simulate billions and billions and billions of years in a few minutes with a supercomputing system. So there's been a lot of effort that's gone into this in the hope that we could build more robust software that way. And it just doesn't work. I mean, really? it has, it, it, it's good at maybe making a great algorithm slightly more efficient. But the idea that you can start with this and get an operating system, there's no chance. It, has it advanced at all with, even with OpenAI and BARD? I mean, has it advanced at all with that? It's advanced a little bit, but the, the advancements are mostly in the form of making already good things better and 
in minor ways, ways that a human user might not even notice the difference, but it's like slightly more efficient. Mm -hmm. But the idea that you could generate a program of the complexity that our own software is, is just ludicrous to me. There's just no way, much less the vastly more complex programs that seem to be running inside cells. Those are a million, millions and millions of times more complex. They use systems of computing that are massively parallel, which humans have tried since the dawn of computing to do, and it's very, very hard for us to write code like that. It's hard for us to think that way. We want to. This is why Intel puts more and more cores into their chips, right. and then software designers struggle to use them all because we struggle to make programs that actually make use of that computing facility. So uh, I find it very implausible. I, I, I wish that it worked to just throw randomness and natural selection at a computational system and get stuff that we see in cells because that would make my job a lot easier. We could just do that. But I just don't see it. Something crucial is missing there, and I find it very hard to believe that there isn't some intelligence behind it. Let's talk about science versus scientism for a second. And because I think that this is kind of where we're going here in our conversation, but I, let, me, let me define, I mean, I think you understand what I'm saying, but let me define what we're talking about with science versus scientism and fill in the gaps mm -hmm. of, of what I miss. Science is just the, um, the study of the natural world with testable hypotheses um, that can be replicated. Um, scientism is putting faith in science to answer all questions, basically. Uh, would you add anything to that? No, that's a good summary. And I find that the differences between various scientists that I've talked to on this topic really boils down to what you just said. Some scientists have enormous faith in the current discoveries that scientists have made, and others have more what I would call, uh, maybe some people call it epistemic humility. Okay. That, um, that they realize that there are going to be limits. Even the best discoveries, there are going to be limits to how true those things are. So um, every scientific discovery that is a great breakthrough is really a disproof of some other scientific discovery that was thought to be correct before that. And as scientists... At least I am not afraid of that at all. That's exciting. I mean, that's where scientists, that's why we became scientists. Sure. We want to push the limits and realize that things that seemed obvious are, are wrong. Um, but along with that, I think, comes a realization that if, say, the Bible is a revelation from a being for whom science is just obvious, then how would you expect such a person to write? It wouldn't be this sort of pedantic, well, I'm going to detail every nuance of how atoms work. And that would be boring. That's not the point of what this person is trying to say to us. So we have to be really, really careful to draw scientific conclusions, I think, from like biblical texts. I want to get there. Let's talk about that for a second. Put a pin in there. Okay. But to the point of what you were talking about with the creator, um, with science versus scientism and being able to discover all truth with scientism, 
I was looking this up. I, I wanted to get it right, but I, I read this from it's an article that uh, Alistair McGrath wrote. He said, after all, the prevailing consensus within the scientific community is that a mere 4% of the universe is observable. 4%. Mm-hmm. So what he's saying is that we can see 4%. 23% of the universe is now thought to consist of dark matter and 73% of dark energy. Thus, 96% of our universe lies beyond the scope of scientific investigation. I mean, even if you had all the faith in science to find out all the truth, which is exactly what you're going to find with God Delusion, uh, Richard Dawkins. I mean, that, that's kind of the point. I, and I think, honestly, from when he wrote that and now, I, I obviously don't know the man, but it seems like he's kind of mellowed a little bit. But the point that um, McGrath is saying is that even if you put all your chips in on science, you're only going to discover 4% of it if you abide by the rules of science. Yeah, and I think it's gotten worse in many ways. Um, Worse, I mean, in terms of the challenge before us to study the physical world. Because uh, more and more, at least in physics, I see a trend towards um, a level of abstraction being required to explain our universe that is increasingly untestable, even by its very definition. And that doesn't mean scientists are wrong for hypothesizing these things. It just shows that there are inherent limitations in what we can observe. Sure. So you've probably heard of things like um, multiple world theory or M-theory. Yeah, the multiverse. Yeah. I've seen Marvel movies. Yes. I know exactly. this. <laughs> yeah. They take some liberties with that theory. <laughs> yes. But uh, yeah, but the, the basic motivation behind that is that there are things that are very difficult to explain why they would exist the way they do in our universe. And one easy way to explain that would be to say that at the dawn of the multiverse, there were an infinity of universes created at that point, and that the different universes all have different physical constants and different physical characteristics. And of course, then, the only one in which there are or one of the few in which there are people around asking questions like, how could it be like this, would be one conducive to life. You're not going to have creatures asking that question in one where the um, gravitational constant was such that the universe never expanded beyond a pebble, right? The ultimate Goldilocks conundrum, right? Yeah. Yeah. But then the problem is that we face this this issue where the, the whole theory predicts that if all of these universes exist it's impossible that any information could ever flow between any of them, which means that we should not be looking for these other universes. In fact, discovery of another universe would disprove the M-theory hypothesis. So we're left with this situation where we have to sort of say, well, if I observe a physical phenomenon and I can't come up with a, a naturalistic explanation for it, then I'll just appeal to M-theory. Well, we just live in the universe where that happened. And I find this very unsatisfying as a scientist. Uh, It seems like the same objection that secularists have to the idea that God exists. They say, well, we can't do that because then you'll be explaining all these natural phenomena by just saying God did it. Well, how's that different than this M-theory thing? Yeah, it's, 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 how do I put it? It's, God has written eternity on everyone's hearts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I read that somewhere. But it's also, you read, whether it's David Hume, 
whether it is Dawkins, whether it's Hitchens, whoever it is who's going to be critical of teleological arguments, epistemological arguments. Yes, I'm biased in saying this, but I think when you read those men who are far smarter than I'm ever going to be, their main argument kind of boils down to there is no God and I hate him. Yeah, and and I find it um, interesting that many of the outspoken proponents of those um, anti-religious philosophies they seem to be far more confident in their conclusions than the actual experimentalists that I talk to who are doing these things. So the ones who are doing it in the lab, many of them are atheists, many of them are skeptics, but they have a lot of caution about what they're doing. They realize, I did this experiment, it seemed to point to a certain reality. I'm not completely confident that that's what the result of this experiment means. Maybe the next experiment will disprove it. And that's because they're being constantly held to a standard of evidence that can come out from under them at any moment and has many times. Right. Well, and also, I mean, William Lane Craig has that argument about just the consistency of mathematics Mm -hmm. to where a theoretical physicist can prove something a hundred years before the experimental physicists actually prove it. Mm -hmm. And just another consistency of an ordered universe that points to a designer. Yeah, and, and this is another reason why you know being a computer scientist gives me a little bit of a different perspective maybe than the physical scientists because um, the standard of proof for us is enormously high. It's basically mathematical perfection, and that's a standard of proof that physical scientists, that's not a, a bar for them. Right? That's not feasible. Right. And then you have softer sciences uh, elsewhere where, um, for example, archaeologists they can't possibly they can't go back in time and absolutely prove to mathematical perfection that some culture behaved the way they speculate they just have to go based on the best evidence they have but i think we as readers as consumers of those results have to then take that into account we say look they're doing the best they can this is what the best evidence suggests but i'm not going to bet my life on whether that is a a, a fact Good transition to let's talk about the thing we put the pen in, um, reading science into Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Psalm Psalm 8, mm-hmm. Job. Um, let, me, let me set it up, and then I want you just to run with it. You know, Ian Barber, he has those four categories of how Christianity, religion has historically related to Christianity. There's the conflict view, which gets all the press. Science and Christianity are locked into a never-ending combat for the souls of the world. And what's ironic is that you have the new atheists on one hand, but you also have the some more militant creation scientists in that category as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have the conflict view. You have the independent view, You know, more of a, a Stephen Jay Gould sort of um, understanding of this to where he would say, um, science gets the age of rocks, religion gets to the rock of ages. <laughs> yeah. Galileo would say um, you know, science is about um, you know, making the world go, understanding what makes the world go and um, making the heavens go. And um, religion is about how to get to heaven. I mean, they're two separate spheres. They're asking different questions. There's the independent view. There's the dialogue view, which we talked about on Sunday. Mm-hmm which, you know, would say that there's something to be said that since they have a common creator, um, 
can learn from both as a dialogue and then more the integrationist view that would say that science is dependent upon supernatural and so kind of infusing more supernatural elements into the testing hypothesis so conflict independent dialogue integration where do you fall into this and how would you flesh that out to someone yeah so that, that's a really great question i find that I have difficulty choosing one of those views because there seem to be really great elements of truth to each one of them. And it really depends on which supposed conflict or lack thereof or, or dialogue, for example, yeah. um, between faith and science you might be talking about. Um, I've studied a lot of the examples that you looked at. One of the ones that was really influential for me personally was studying the issue with uh, Galileo and heliocentrism. It's very famous. We all know about that. But one thing I rarely hear anyone talk about is what were the reasons that the Church of Galileo's time rejected his view of heliocentrism? So just to set that up a little bit in case uh, listeners don't know about it, um, Galileo, around the 1600s, he started to see what he thought was evidence of heliocentrism using telescopes. And the evidence wasn't that great. In fact, most scientists of his day did not believe him. So it, he was on shaky ground. Hmm. But um, the idea that the sun might be the center of the solar system had been around for at least 100 years. Pernicus. Pernicus, right. Yeah. Um, so um, Christians of his day pretty much universally... Um, preached against him. They said, this is heresy. The Catholic Church uh, put him under house arrest for the rest of his life. Um, the Protestant reformers gave many sermons about how ridiculous this is, and I was curious as to why. Like, what does this have to do with anything that the Bible says? And uh, I read some of the things written by, like, Martin Luther, uh, John Calvin. Their position seemed to be that um, the Bible is directly contradicted by the idea that the earth goes around the sun. So it would be like a Psalm, I, I, I'm going to get this wrong, we'll double check this and edit, but Psalm 38, the earth is fixed. The yeah, earth is that's moved. one of them. Yes. Uh -huh. um, there's uh, a verse in Ecclesiastes, I think it's one five that says, the sun rises and sets and goes right. back to where mm -hmm. it starts. So it's an issue of biblical inspiration and authority, yeah. is what yeah. I would say. So their position was, if the Bible says the sun rose, then it's lying. Because the sun didn't rise, the earth rotated. And today, when we look back at that, I, it's just ridiculous, right? I mean, I say the sun rose. Yeah. And obviously I know sun that comes technically up, sun goes down. the earth rotated and everything. So... What we see is that the Christians of Galileo's day made a big mistake. They had an error in the way they were interpreting Scripture. They were treating it as though God was taking great care to spell out all of the scientific details that are irrelevant to the main point that he was trying to get across in each passage. And they were, they were of the opinion that if even one of those things were to be misinterpreted by mankind— then that would be a lie on God's part. And so what that taught me was that um, we have to recognize when we read Scripture that if we are talking about an author for whom science is just like 
second nature. I mean, he doesn't even need to think about it. He created the whole universe. Sure. Just like we don't think about the fact that the earth is rotating. I mean, that's not just part of our casual conversation. Then I would expect God to say things that would make sense to the people of that day and be cautious to spell out the things that he cares about, like morality and righteousness and holiness. He's not going to be sitting there saying, asterisk, technically, the sun did not stop in the sky when you prayed for that, Joshua. It was a change in the rotation of the earth. Or um, when I said that I created the sun, moon, and stars on day number four, actually, that was just the appearance of those in the sky when the cloud of dust that covered the earth disappeared. Or I don't know what it was, but there are many possible explanations for these things that don't assume that God is lying about these things. He's just giving us the explanation that makes sense to us in order to make his point. Yeah, and understanding, I'd say two things. One, understanding different biblical genres. Because mm-hmm. um, in the same way that when God, in Genesis 1, where it says God created the heavens and the earth, uh, in Job it said God slew Leviathan and created the heavens. So, I mean, there's he, he didn't slay a sea monster and make the earth. We, we know it didn't happen that way. Um, but on the second thing, in addition to understanding genre and interpreting the Bible um, correctly, not to say that we're going to go all the way into critical criticism or form criticism or you know German liberalism for that, but I, I would say, on the other hand, in addition to genre, if my now five-year-old asks me where babies come from, I'm going to tell them they come from mama's tummy right now. Uh-huh, right. You know, we're not going to have, you know, that conversation yet. And I know we have different, there's different opinions and stuff about how to have that conversation, when to have that conversation, mm-hmm. but just take it as, you know, regardless of age where, where a parent feels comfortable talking about that sort of topic, it's going to range an explanation mm-hmm. from mommy's tummy to a more graphic uh, biological explanation of it. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing just how many details, just in passing, the Bible gets right about things that only in modern times have we started to realize. So I've often thought about like the the creation story that um, it began with the creation of light. That is a stunning idea. That is not like any creation myth of any ancient society. No, and it is a literal description of what we now call the Big Bang. That is exactly how the universe began, according to the modern view. So things like that sort of are these little clues, I think, that um, even if it wasn't God's intention to teach us science, and we're prone to misinterpreting any kind of scientific fact we might find there, in retrospect, you see all of these details that are just striking. Like, Mm -hmm. where would they have come up with that, except that they had an information source other than their own imaginations? Right, exactly. Well, I think we are right at time now. Great. But, uh, um, Doctor, I appreciate you so much taking time to talk with us. And um, we'll have you back soon and uh, continue this conversation. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot.